Hi, welcome to the newly relaunched Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, your host, and I'm so excited to be back, and this time flying solo without my beloved Meredith Carey, but with a ton of new travel stories to share. It's been a challenging couple of years making this podcast during the pandemic, often in a time when we weren't able to travel. And yet, all we wanted to do was talk about travel. While I won't confidently say that the pandemic is over, we are moving around the world once again. And that has included myself. Since we went off the air back in the spring, I've been hopping all over the world, including going to the Southern Hemisphere. I went to Patagonia, where I was hiking through the wilderness. Sometimes you can spot some condors over there. I'm also going to be talking about pushing myself to learn a new sport slightly closer to home over the weekends in Rockaway Beach in Queens, New York, and actually trying to stick with it. But more on that later. We'll also be hearing from some of you about your new outdoorsy challenges. I decided to hike the Camino de Santiago in Galicia, Spain. When I told my husband I was going to take part in a 24-hour endurance regatta. We, especially my mom, were so glad we pushed through the fear and uncertainty. But to do it in December, during the rainiest, coldest part of the year, and I decided to do it alone. He looked at me as if I was going crazy. We hiked 9.8 miles, 25,310 steps down Furanalp, and trust me, we felt every single one of those steps. When I was in Patagonia, I was by myself for so much of it, which after two years of actually not having that much time by myself felt incredibly novel and incredibly exciting. The weather was misty. It was cold. It was April, but autumnal, very different from the weather I'd left behind in New York. Nothing rang home quite how isolating being in the Andes was, though, in the middle of Chilean Patagonia, like the transportation to get there. I left New York City on a Tuesday afternoon, caught a commercial plane to Dallas, connected to another commercial flight to Santiago. From there, I got on a domestic flight to a small city called Portamont, which is perhaps best known for a volcano that erupted several years ago, and I can't really tell you much else. I got on a 10-seater propeller plane, which flew me to the tiny village of Chaiten. And from there... A very generous and kind older couple who didn't speak a lick of English and I didn't speak a lick of Spanish drove me for three hours through gorges and past glaciers and into the mountains to my final destination, outside of the village of Futulafu. It was like a Russian nesting doll of transport experiences. With every new mode of transport, I became more and more alone, shedding American backpackers and hikers, and starting to feel like I was never going to be seen again. On my first morning waking up in the Andes, the owner of the lodge that I was staying at, Marcelo, decided to take me out for a hike with him and his two dogs, Baloo and Poncho. It was misty, it was drizzly, I had my rain jacket zipped up and my hiking boots on. And the only sound other than the dog sniffing in the grass was the sound of the mud squelching beneath our hiking boots. 
We talked about everything, from Pearl Jam to psychedelic mushrooms to Tokyo, to why the colour of the river in Futulafu was such a brilliant, iridescent blue. It was one of the best days I've ever had. It was one of the best travel experiences I've ever had. Sometimes you can spot some condors over there. I'm excited to report back on our request to our Women Who Travel community for a voice memo about a wilderness experience that you've never had before. Tracy Shields sent us this one about walking an ancient pilgrimage route in Spain. My name is Tracy Shields, and I'm a 54-year-old mom of two who owns a vitamin supplement company and who lives in a quiet suburb of New Jersey. Despite being in good health and quite fit and living a relatively peaceful life, I suffer from horrible anxiety and panic attacks. To make matters worse, the last year I was hit with tragedy after tragedy, including the death of my best friend. My usual go-to move to feel better is to pick a spot on the globe and go. But I really needed something that would kind of shake me up a bit and give me a slap in the face kind of awakening to get rid of this nagging anxiety. And I didn't want to turn to medication. I decided to hike the Camino de Santiago in Galicia, Spain for seven days straight, which is 100 kilometers. But to do it in December during the rainiest, coldest part of the year, and I decided to do it alone. I live part of the year in Madrid because my sons are half Spanish. And so it seemed like a good idea. But doing a bit of prep work for this adventure, I entered into this bizarre realm of Facebook groups and hiking groups and sites devoted to everything from what to eat on the Camino, what shoes to wear, what bag to carry, what where to pee. Um, And every bit of the advice that I gleaned failed miserably uh, in the conditions of December. Um, The shoes and the clothing were all recommended for summer hikes and forget about bathrooms. Nothing was open. No places to eat. Um, A tree or a bush was what you got. And let me tell you, being a 54-year-old woman still having her period and two layers of pants on, not fun. (laughs) But... I never saw a single soul on the route for two entire days. And when I finally did, we kind of nodded and moved on, um, perhaps in respect of the silence and the emptiness. Um, I want to just say that the most important part of this trip was that the fear of taking that very first step overwhelmed but enthralled me. I am not a very religious person, but there is something quite primordial and sacred about walking alone in the rain and wind that leads down a well-worn path where uh, so many have been before, but where no one but you is standing. For me, coming out of pandemic, as much as I would run to clear my head, I found that it wasn't really doing that much for me. Instead, the idea of throwing myself into the ice-cold Atlantic Ocean was becoming more and more appealing. A surprise given that I'm someone who's notoriously skittish in waves. So I signed up with a local surf school, donned my wetsuit, got a foam board and went out to sea, where an off-duty firefighter who volunteers on the weekends taught me how to surf. I didn't stand up. I still can't really stand up. But what I did do was not get scared of the waves. And the more that I did it, 
the more I threw myself in and learned how to fall safely and get myself back up again. At first glance, the surf scene at the Rockaways, which I think you can say for most things, feels dominated by men. But there are lots of women getting on their boards there. And the more time I spent on the beach, the more I realised that women were just as present on their surfboards as men. All you have to do is buy a $3 subway ticket to get there, which makes it probably one of the more accessible outdoor experiences in New York. What I think is amazing about Rockaway and other city beaches is that there are just no tourists. It's just people who live in the city. It is a beach for the people of New York. Like I said, I still can't really stand up on the board. But for the few moments that I've managed to get up to my knees or even just hover on one foot before tumbling into the ocean, have felt truly exhilarating. And have also made me feel, even for just one brief second, somewhat graceful. I love this message from listener Anna Mazier-Boos who radically changed her life recently by learning another water sport. When I open my closet, my sailing gear takes up a third of the space. I have sailing clothes for all weather, the boots, the cars, the gloves, clothes for sailing, the racing dinghies and large yachts. Only a few years ago, my closet was full of sophisticated office wear. Two years after the Brexit referendum, my French husband and I moved from London to a coastal city in France, so far on the west, that the next stop from here is North America. Sailing came in in the most transformative moment for me. I was unhappy with my dream company that I spent years preparing for and building. Despite being successful, I was utterly miserable and felt a prisoner of my own business. When I told my husband I was going to take part in a 24-hour endurance regatta in a coastal village where his family has been holidaying for over 100 years, he looked at me as if I was going crazy. At that point, I'd never been on a boat before, save for a ferry across the channel. I still haven't taken part in the regatta just yet, but since then I learned to sail racing dinghies, racing catamarans and 40-foot sailing yachts. I'm aiming to do the regatta in the next two years. When I started sailing, I never knew it would take over my life in the most wonderful way. Suddenly, there was a whole gamut of emotion, from exhilaration to euphoria to sometimes feeling miserable when a maneuver I had executed didn't go exactly to plan. When I sail, I focus on the boat and the sea and the crew, and in this moment, nothing really exists. I have a feeling that a real life, a life of adventure, a life away from computer screen is happening right now. Everything else just seems so far away. I've just finished my summer of sailing. Sailing has become a huge part of my life. And I don't know where it's leading me, but I know that this adventure has only just begun. Remember, To stay up to date on all things Women Who Travel, make sure you're subscribed to the Women Who Travel newsletter via the link in our show notes and that you're following Women Who Travel on Instagram. Coming up after the break, we're going to stay by the coast, but this time an even wilder one, where stormy waves and tides haven't deterred Danish author Dorf Noors 
from making a life there. So I wouldn't say that I'm, I have anxiety of the ocean, but I have deep respect. Ingenting kunne måle sig Med det der var rundt om mig This song by Danish singer-songwriter Solvay, who, like my next guest, moved from Copenhagen to Jutland's wild west coast, is called Where I Am From. It's about life getting rough, but also about life keeping going. This song really fits the landscape that Dorf Noors writes about in her series of essays, A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea. I can feel the cold and the damp ocean spray in her writing. I'm super excited that you could actually sense the landscape through the writing because that's what a writer really hopes for um, when you don't have a camera and you, you can't pull people out there and, and have them see it and taste it for themselves. Dorf joined me from her coastal home. I live on the Danish uh, North Sea coast. Uh, that is the western part of Denmark. And I live in a little village called Vilosø, which is a few kilometers from the shore itself. It's on the central west coast, um, so it's right in the middle between the northern uh, spit of Denmark and the German border. So if you come from the, if you move from the east across the land and get closer and closer to this coastline, it will get flatter and flatter. You will be sort of moving on plains that are, you can see far. There's a lot of horizon. It's raw. The wind, the trees are like wind swept. They are all pointing towards the east because the North Sea winds are so strong and come from the west and then you know, push the, the vegetation down. And then in the far distance, you will see what looks like a mountain range and you can't define how tall it is. It could be almost like the Rocky Mountains or it could be tiny bumps. You can't see because you ha- don't have anything to measure it against. So it's, it looks dramatic. Uh, when you come close, you can see that it is sand dunes, but they're tall, and there's a reason why the locals call them sea mountains, because that's what they look like. And when you have uh, crawled your way on top of them, you'll see the North Sea on the other side, all the way to the British Isles, and beyond that, down into Europe and into the world, into America, basically. You're just on the other side of, of the world. I, I usually feel like that when I'm there. It's like the world begins here. Yeah, I can just go that way that's funny that you said that the world begins because I often I was in Patagonia a few months ago on the coast which was obviously a very different part of the world but sounds like it had some similarities in terms of just the sort of turbulent weather and the um, very dramatic beaches and landscapes but to me it felt like the edge of the world so it's really interesting that you say that you feel like you're at the beginning of the world on that coastline I do think that a lot of people especially landlocked people will see this place as, uh, as, as where it all ends. But because I grew up in these regions and I've always been close to the sea and I've always had a strong longing to go to, especially the English-speaking world, 
that's where it begins. That's where adventure begins, connection begins, uh, trade. And that is also the truth about the North Sea. It's always been where people on this coastline has uh, had their focus, where they could meet uh, other people, where they could steal rape if they were Vikings, you know, <laughs> that, would, that would be where they went to steal rape and, and be horrific. Uh, but also to settle and mix gene pools and, and trade and, and make communities. And yeah, so I think it's in our nature here that that's where the world begins. And so you moved from Copenhagen to the coast. Did you think you would stay as long as you have? Or did, did it feel temporary at the time? Or did you always know that that was going to where you, be where you ended up? Oh, I didn't know. It was like jumping from a cliff when I did it. Because I had been taught in school and all through my years studying and and uh, the first years of my writing life that what you had to do was that you had to live in big cities. And turning around and walking in the opposite direction was so scary. And there were not that many people around, friends, relatives who understood why I would do it. And when I did it, it was like doing it blindfolded. I'm just going to buy that house. It's going to be in that village and I'm going to make it work. And I better make it work because you can't sell that house again. It's really hard selling house. <laughs> so no, you're just doing it and then stick to it until something works. So I remember the first time I was in my house after I bought it and everything was empty. And I could see those sea mountains somewhere far away beyond the plains. And uh, I just sat down on the floor in the living room and, and just thought, oh my God, what have I done? I was 43. Everybody expected me to do something else. But it has always been an instinct in my life to sort of navigate in another direction than what others expected me to do. That's where I found freedom. I found that because I have an international writing career, I travel a lot. So the world was still there. The world was there even more than it was when I lived in Copenhagen. I was much more in touch internationally than I had been when I lived in Copenhagen. And then I had peace and quiet when I was home and a very good environment to, to write in. And this immense and beautiful and rough landscape to sort of recharge me, charge my energy. But I didn't know that in the beginning. I just thought I had done something completely idiotic. <laughs> yeah. You have this really fascinating, wonderful line that I've been thinking about where you, you write, I moved from the capital to a distant area without a husband or children, too old to procreate and apparently more interested in writing and traveling what do you do with a woman like that? <laughs> I think that can be applied to so many different scenarios and places around the world. It can. <laughs> How over time <laughs> have you found yourself to be accepted by locals there? Or like you said, are you just someone that doesn't necessarily seek out community in the first place? Um, I think in the beginning, I was considered a complete misfit. It was not only the, the lack of uh, a nuclear family around me that, that was confusing, and also 
that they were a little disappointed about it because then I wouldn't produce children for the school, which is a, an important thing in, in small communities. But I also found that um, I perhaps had to struggle a little bit more with with some of the men around here, actually, <laughs> not because they wanted to date me or anything, not at all. No, more because they find they found it weird uh, that I wasn't living in a traditional marriage. Uh, so, one of the things they worried about was if I was going to give their wives any good ideas. I mean, you know, if, if they wanted to be liberated themselves. Uh, so I was a bit dangerous, and and then it was also my job. One of the essays that really captured my imagination was about cold Hawaii and yeah, the, yeah. the surf scene, which as someone who is attempting to learn to surf in the Atlantic Ocean in New York... I was fascinated to read about. Um, talk a little bit about that community, which, you know, it felt like you were, you found very magnetic, but at the same time you were sort of observing as an outsider who was showing up much in the same way that the surf community had a few decades before. What was it that fascinated you so much about them? Coastlines like this have always had tourism. And tourism is, of course, very important for economy here, but it is also a bit destructive. Tourists come for the beaches, uh, the sea, and also because many of these beaches down south has been ruined by tourism. So they drift north to get pristine country sides where there's uh, still rough land, still silence and still places where you can walk alone along, along the beach and, and feel the vastness and, and the untouched landscape. When tourism comes, it also destroys a lot of stuff around them. But the, but the surfers in cold Hawaii, uh, they actually settle. They, just, they don't come for the weekend alone. They settle there and they live their lives there and they have a very strong interaction with nature and landscape and and uh, and they also have a different kind of materialism so they blend in and they transform the landscape and the cities in a very organic way that i find super fascinating they come they look good they're athletic so they draw in spouses so the communities thrive with a lot of talent and a lot of a lot of kids so the schools thrive it's like they they bring so much energy to to these areas. It started in a little village called Klitmüller in um, Tüp, which is on the northern part of this coastline. And it has just spread all the way down the coastline. We, we're seeing the cold Hawaii effect, all the, uh, certain spots here and there up and down the coastline. And um, it's a blessing and super interesting to observe. And it is true that I've served them from a distance, but that's because I just don't like communities. But it doesn't, <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not quite enthusiastic about what they bring to this coastline. Also, they come from all over the world, so they're international. 
So when you walk around in Kota Hawaii, you meet people from Germany, Canada, uh, Japan, everywhere. They go there because they want to they wanna surf in cold waters. My American editor right now, Yuka, is actually from the real Hawaii. We sometimes send photos from my Hawaii to her Hawaii, and it's hilarious because they're so cold and blue over her. They're like freezing <laughs> like crazy. And her Hawaiians are really, yeah, really enjoying the weather. <laughs> Just thinking about all those surfers getting in that frigid, frigid water. Do you ever get in the ocean? Yeah, in summer I sometimes do, but I would never get on a surfboard. I'm too scared of, of the ocean. Actually, I'm quite scared of the North Sea. I, I will go in on a very hot day. I will never swim. I will go into the water where I can tell that there is no undertow. And then I'll just stand there and let the currents uh, just wash over me. When I was 10 or 11, I was actually drawn to sea by one of these very, very big uh, waves that sometimes come in the summer out here. So I wouldn't say that I'm, I have anxiety of the ocean, but I have deep respect. Do you think you'll ever stop wanting to write about this part of the world? I think it will always be a part of me. And I'm always in awe or unhappy or meditative when I'm uh, at the ocean. I'll probably be staying close to it forever. And I also think it's because it's so unknown. It's still, I mean, we know every square meter of this little planet but we don't know much about what's under the water it's still there are landscapes down there that we don't understand there are animals and beasts and everything down there that we don't understand it's like it's still an enigma to us it's like looking into our own subconscious it's like where everything's possible down there there's stories there are fears and hopes and everything and also i mean that's where we came from it's like sometimes when i climb the dunes and I look over the, the North Sea I go oh, oh there you are old mama it's like it's like it's like that's where we came from uh, we were cooking down there for a couple of billion years and then we crawled on land so it's like, so it's like the big womb I love that In contrast to the frigid North Sea, I have one last story from the Alps, but this time in scorching 95 degree heat. It's from listener Emily Rocha. So my 60-year-old mom and I recently went on a dream trip to Switzerland and went hiking in the Alps. I'm pretty adventurous, but my mom is definitely more cautious. As a three-time cancer survivor, she's really pushed herself more in the last few years than ever before because she sees the importance and value of living life to the fullest and making the most of every opportunity, and I'm grateful she's passed that along to me. So when we had the chance to hike down Furenalp in Engelberg, Switzerland, she put aside her fear of heights and was all in. We boarded the cable car to the top of the mountain and suddenly became very aware of the altitude. Admittedly, we were both pretty nervous. 
although I probably wouldn't have admitted it in the moment. But the second we stepped off the car and into the fresh mountain air, surrounded by wildflowers, peaks, and glaciers in the distance, we, especially my mom, were so glad we pushed through the fear and uncertainty. We hiked 9.8 miles, 25,310 steps down Furenalp, and trust me, we felt every single one of those steps. Uh, back to Engelberg, past rushing waterfalls, glacial streams, cows grazing in pastures over gravel and grass and sticks and stones, and through some of the most beautiful vistas we've ever seen, although so close to the edge at some points that I was afraid of falling over the edge. Um, as we descended, I felt a sense of freedom, empowerment, and downright badassness that I don't think I've ever really experienced. And truthfully, an extreme amount of pride in my mom for powering through her fear and some of her physical fears, especially to accomplish this huge feat. I'm confident we'll talk about that day for the rest of our lives because it's about collecting memories, not things. And that's one of the most precious memories I'll keep with me. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hannah and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton-Brown is our composer. Brett Fuchs and Jennifer Nolson were our engineers. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Next week, the pleasures of discovering European cities on foot. For more stories from Women Who Travel, visit cntraveller.com.